everybody. I'm Nicole. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Sarah. And together we're the co-founders of Whale Tales, a living library of cetacean stories. Today, we are super excited to be joined by a very special guest. <laughs> so sit back and enjoy as we dive right in. Okay, we're not going to keep you in suspense any longer. We are joined by long, long, long time friend of ours, but it's been a very long time since we've spoken to her, the illustrious beluga researcher extraordinaire, <laughs> and now I'm trying to make her blush, Dr. Valeria Vergara, who is currently a research scientist and the acting director of the Marine Mammal Conservation Research Group at, wait for it, Oceanwise Conservation Association. Hooray! I am impressed. (laughs) I had notes. (laughs) That was very well done. Thank you. And thank you so, so, so much for being here. Oh, no, this is, um, I love this stuff. This is, this is what makes my, my job good. You know, people don't, people don't find out about these things. Then, you know, what's, yeah, this is, this is the fun part. Aww. Well, we're really excited to have you here. Uh, all three of us worked with you at uh, OceanWise yeah. many, many moons ago, <laughs> more know. so than we're Let's not to talk it. about it. I don't want to think about it. It's... Um, but you now are doing all kinds of crazy stuff. You've been doing all kinds of crazy stuff. You've had an amazing career all over the globe. Can you tell us and our listeners a little bit, or a lot of it, whatever you'd like, about... <laughs> sort of how you found yourself researching marine mammals and the highlights of your career up till now. Uh, sure. It's, it's, uh, it's not a traditional story. Uh, it starts in Argentina, where I was a very... Um, I was a kid that was absolutely in love with uh, wild animals. And uh, so I knew I wanted to uh, study animal behavior since I was about seven years old. Um, and I would watch uh, Jane Goodall and D- Diane Fossey uh, documentaries. So my career did not start with marine mammals. Um, when I was 19 years old, I got a, a scholarship from the Canadian International Development Agency to come to Canada to do my science degree. And uh, I studied coyotes for my undergraduate undergrad, uh, thesis for my honors thesis and I studied uh, red foxes actually for for my master's so it was not until my PhD that I that I switched to marine mammals and I I've always been fascinated by the social uh, world social lives of, of animals um, and in, in the beginning this was uh, uh, terrestrial mammals uh, you know especially wolves and and uh, and foxes and uh, coyotes, all three species that I studied. And then I had a a very brief stint, uh, by brief I mean about six months, studying humpback whales in Newfoundland. And I became enamored uh, of marine mammals. And I started reading literature on, you know, the social lives of of marine mammals and their communication systems. And I thought, this is what I want to do for my for my PhD. So when I got an answer a scholarship one time uh, came to do my PhD, I contacted Lance Barrett Leonard, which who was at the time the director of the Marine Mammal Research Lab at the Vancouver Aquarium, and I said, you know, I I I have funding. I would love to study killer whales with you. Can I come? And he said, uh, we had a few ba- great back and forths, and he said, you know. 
I don't need a student right now to, to help me with my killer whale work, but I do need a student to come and study the, uh, the vocal development of a beluga calf that is about to be born at the Vancouver Aquarium. And this was literally very, very shortly before Tuvac was, was born. So I had to make my decision very quickly, and I did. I thought this would be a great opportunity to, you know, to sort of launch my 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 career. Uh, so it all started there in 2002. And I uh, my thesis initially focused on how little beluga calves learn to speak beluga. So how do they learn all these, you know, all these various sounds that belugas make? And I should say here that belugas are very, uh, very well known for, for their loquaciousness. They're just incredibly vocal. They make all sorts of sounds and nobody then knew how beluga calves develop their incredibly rich repertoire. We knew next to nothing about that. So it was a, it was a really cool, cool little study. <laughs> I'm sorry, you said little. <laughs> little study. Oh, can this, you say that again? Should this, I say that again? No, no, no. I think that's, that <laughs> speaks so. That speaks so much to your humbleness, Gloria, because this was, is this is groundbreaking research you did. It's and it's something I think that people really take for granted now when learning about belugas. And you're right. In 2002, when you started the study, nobody knew it. Nobody knew so it. Yeah, nobody I think knew it. That's it's just it's so incredible yeah it, it was it was really fascinating it, it fascinated me and when you're going to do a phd you need to be fascinated by what you study because it is a really arduous process <laughs> so uh so i was very very into it and i when you begin to study a species the species that you're studying doesn't read your book they don't read your proposal you always begin to study something and it leads someplace else. You discover things that are unexpected. You go different places if you're, you know, if you're observative and if you're, if you pay attention to the things that you're finding. So one of the things that I very, very quickly into the study, I, I started looking into was the, what, that this, that beluga whales produce one kind of call that is the contact call. That is a call that mothers and calves use to stay in touch with one another, but also that they use for group cohesion. So this was super interesting. And this brought me to uh, the Nelson River estuary, where I it was the first time that I studied belugas in, in the wild. And uh, I spent a month there. And I wanted to verify if, this, if, if belugas in the wild use these contact calls. And they did. I was very excited to find this, this out. And they, they also use these calls in, in similar situations, in situations of isolation, for example. So uh, in that, uh, at that time, uh, DFO was uh, temporarily trapping and tagging belugas and letting them go within 20 minutes or so. It was a very quick process. But the fact is that, that's, that the belugas were isolated from the herd for about 20 minutes. And these are the calls that they would produce. So... I, you know, I knew I was onto something. I knew that that contacts were something that belugas used, not just uh, in in you know in under human care, but also in the wild. And then uh, a couple of years after that, I began to go to the Saint Lawrence uh, River estuary, and I went there very often. I continue to go almost every year, 
um, and we continue to st- to to study contact calls in the St. Lawrence. It's it's a long story, the the story of of how the contact call research uh, developed, but. Um, yeah, it's a good one. Tell it, the it's whole a good thing. tell the whole thing. Okay, so 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 I discovered that contact calls are used for group cohesion, and uh, we uh, this is pretty funny. We conducted a, a completely failed study in the Saint Lawrence where we had the grand idea of playing contact calls to beluga groups and expecting them to answer back, and of course they didn't. You know, and they, they it was absolute silence you know <laughs> from the whales so we we aborted that study fairly quickly you know we realized something was not working and what probably was is that we did not have um a broadcasting equipment with a, a bandwidth that was that was uh that would replicate beluga calls uh in in the way we would need those calls to be uh, to be played uh so belugas probably heard these calls being played underwater and knew that that was not a beluga call belugas make calls that have energy acoustic energy at frequencies that are so high um about 10 times higher than what a human would be able to hear so we hear when we have very very good hearing we hear sounds up to 20 kilohertz. I, you know, when we get older, we lose that ability and we hear sounds up to 14 kilohertz. Belugas hear sounds up to 150 kilohertz and they vocalize at those frequencies. So a lot of the communication sounds that they produce uh, have energy in the lower frequencies that those are the sounds that we can hear and they have acoustic energy at high frequencies that we miss. So unless you're looking at a spectrogram, you don't know that there's information being exchanged in those frequencies. So part of the problem with that study was probably that we failed to broadcast at those frequencies. And part of it was that belugas are very smart and we <laughs> were probably broadcasting something that had a very concrete meaning to them. And they're like, uh-uh, you know, <laughs> so, so, you know, you, you, you win some, you lose some in biology. The, the, then, uh, the, the, the winning moment was, uh, a couple of years later in Cunningham Inlet. And this was, uh, uh very far north in the Canadian high Arctic, a beautiful, beautiful beluga summering estuary on the north end of, of uh, Somerset Island. And uh, this is a place where belugas uh, come every summer for about four or five weeks and they bring their little calves and they nurse them and raise them and they socialize and they hang out by the river rolling on the mud and pebbles to, to help mulch their skin. And then they leave on their on their winter migration back to their wintering grounds. So I spent a couple of summers in that area. And um, what began to happen was that we would observe belugas split from the large herd. And I'm talking a herd of 500 to 1,000 animals that you would see at once from a cliff. It was incredible. So you'd see these little groups split off from the larger aggregation and swim up the river. You're like, why are they swimming up the river? You know, we we don't know why they do that. Do they are they seeking out the warm warmer water? Do they does it help with molting? Is it do they just want to respite from the rest? We don't know. But the tide would go down, and a sandbar would suddenly separate the whales that were upriver from the whales in the estuary, 
And it, it meant that the, the belugas that were upriver would get entrapped in these little river pools that were like 70 meters by 20 meters, very tiny river pools. And they would be stuck there until the tide would go uh, up again and they would get out. And so that was a perfect opportunity to record animals in groups of known composition. I knew how many calves there were. I knew how many trapped animals we had. And the whales that were in these entrapments produced contact calls almost exclusively, presumably to communicate with the guys outside the, the canal. So I had 14 of these entrapments, and I found that there was a really, really strong correlation between the number of animals in an entrapment and the number of contact call types. So it seemed to be the case that there's a, a diversity of contact calls and that perhaps this means that each beluga produces its own signature call, sort of like swimming around uh, broadcasting your name. Uh, so we, we published a paper on this. This was one of my most exciting findings. This was um, last year the paper came out. And this is, this is very preliminary evidence that belugas might be just like bottlenose dolphins. They might be one of those species, one of those rare species that don't just have differences in voice characteristics, but that actually have very intentional names that they broadcast to the rest of the group. And I could go on because this has a lot to do with their social structure, and that's a whole other piece that I can <laughs> explain. Um, but we're working on that piece now. We're 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 now in the Saint Lawrence Saint Lawrence River Estuary. We've um, partnered with colleagues from DFO that are using D tags. These are very non-intrusive um, acoustic tags that attach to a whale for just a couple of hours at a time and they then fall off and they record the sounds that and, and, and a number of other things. But amongst the things that, uh, that, that these tags, D tags do is they record sounds. So we are uh, using this data to, to basically to corroborate the idea that these uh, contact calls are individually specific. So we don't know the answer yet, but that's what we're looking into. Oh my gosh, that's so cool. That was long. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, no, don't, do not apologize at all. Yeah. Um, we're totally enthralled. <laughs> I do actually want to go to what you were mentioning in terms of like how that relates to their social structure. But I was wondering if we could backtrack for just a second and talk about what exactly is a contact call like how would you define it what does it look like when you're looking at a visual representation of it what does it sound like so i will i will give you a i will give you a few files so you can put them online if you want but i'll pass on to you a, a file where pe people will hear it and you can the contact calls are so easy to tell apart from other calls. They are calls that evolved to be noticeable and they evolved to be different than the rest of the repertoire. If you're, you know, if you want your calf by you right now and you want to hear your calf, it pays off for your calf to make a call that is very distinct. So they are calls that sound nothing like the melodic, beautiful whistles and chirps that have given the beluga the name of sea canaries. They are calls that sound instead like chainsaws. They sound a little bit like when you open a really rusty old door. You know, that's yep. a contact call. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that's awesome. Here's the sample of maternal contact calls that Valeria sent us.
I'm also actually gonna gonna send you a, a clip that I produced with my daughter when my daughter was nine years old. I asked her to help me illustrate contact calls for the public. And I said, you know, I, I wanted to illustrate that contact calls, what what makes them special is that they cut through the chatter of the species. If you, it's like the cocktail party effect. They cut through that. And humans do the same. When, when you're in a playground full of kids and your kid starts calling, that, that call cuts through the chatter of humans. So I, I took my daughter to a very busy uh, playground in Vancouver on a Sunday and, you know, moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas were sitting there eating their sandwiches. This was pre-COVID. <laughs> um, kids were running around. It was very noisy. And I asked my daughter to go to the other end of the playground and call me. And I lifted my my iPhone. And so mm-hmm. she, she started calling and I recorded her sound cutting through the chatter of human oh. noise. And often I... When I give talks, I present that little clip next to the beluga clip with, you know, mom and calf calling. And it's very similar. It's just, you know, <laughs> it's just a language you don't understand. But but it's but the idea is very similar. Valeria also sent us the recording that she described with her and her daughter. <laughs> That's so, I'd never thought about it in reverse because I frequently, when I think about contact calls, I often think about the mom calling the calf, but it is. And I, I do remember learning from you that it's the, it's just as much the calf calling it's back to the mom. And I hadn't put two and two together, but like, obviously when I take my two-year-olds out to the playground or out somewhere social, that he will call me mommy. And almost every other kid at the playground is also, if they're going to call for their mom, is going to say mommy. But you instinctively know your kid's mommy as opposed to, like, I'd never put two and two together. Yeah. Yeah, Like, I, I could be blocks away yeah right? and like having but a you can hear engrossed conversation <laughs> and when james says mommy I'm like Whoop. absolutely and it's funny because in this recording my daughter says mommy as well <laughs> yeah and at the end of it you know after a while of, of of calling she gets insistent so she goes mommy you know and and then i i I play the contact calls from belugas for people and I tell what I say usually is that the the contact calls are very stereotyped that they 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 kind of sound the same it's it's like the same word mommy but what changes is the urgency the loudness the frequency the repetition you know all of those things much like for humans and then another another cool thing is that you know both pretty adults and and uh and uh, newborns or calves produce these contact calls, but uh, beluga calves don't know how to produce the very complex, elaborate contact calls that that uh, adults produce. So they they don't know to produce signature calls yet. They don't know how to produce that presumed uh, or hypothesized uh, distinctive signature that that we're thinking are individual to to each beluga. Um, they learn this as they grow, and they learn this call from their mothers. Uh, so Tuvac, for example, uh, it took him about two years to to produce Aurora's uh, contact call. 
and we don't know if later in life they they you know they change that contacle and, and learn to produce their own or if it's always a kind of like a small variation of the maternal contacle those are all things that we're looking into but it's uh, in belugas there's such a thing as babbling very much like for human toddlers all they all they know what to do at first is is uh, they make very soft uh, pulsed trains that's what what they're called in bioacoustics and then very slowly they incorporate uh, all you know the various elements of of the beluga repertoire um, and they become more and more complex in their in their vocal production and they slowly learn to produce these very stereotyped uh, contact calls. Just like toddlers. My... Just, just like toddlers, yeah. Yeah, my nephew calls me Didi because my name is too hard. Yeah, <laughs> right? Ex- exactly, exactly. It's Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, if you know, if you think of a, yeah, it makes so much sense. If you think of a, you know, the fact that belugas are a long-lived, very social, very intelligent species with a very long period of parental dependency, the window for learning is very long and they have a lot to learn. This is a very complex vocal system. So, of course, they're not born with it. They're going to learn it gradually. You talked a little bit about the one that came out last year, but what have you been up to lately, especially this year? Were you able to go... Yeah. To your research sites and stuff like that. No, I was not able to go to my research site. I forgot why. Why would that be? Oh, yeah. <laughs> what happened in 2020? I think 2020 will be <laughs> imprinted in all of our memories <laughs> forever. Uh, but no, uh, I I was not in the field for the first time in many years. Um, but I'm very lucky that I have very close research partners in the field that actually live in, in Tadoussac. Uh, so they have a boat there. And uh, so we we did research with them, so vic- vicariously <laughs> through them. Um, so what we did this year is uh, we uh, deployed, along with our partners, uh, two hydrophones in two areas of the critical habitat of uh, St. Lawrence Belugas. Uh, and the purpose of this was to look into noise levels. Uh, these two areas have very different uh, degrees of, of, of traffic, of vessel traffic and underwater noise. And I should probably backtrack and, and tell people a little bit about the issue of noise. You know, if you think of um, marine mammals being profoundly acoustic species, belugas are a really, really classic example. They use sound for every aspect of, of their lives to communicate, to, to find food, uh, to, to navigate, to stay in touch with one another, to find mates. Um, and the reason they use sound is that sight is, vision is pretty ineffective in the water. Uh, light dissipates very quickly and, you know, vision doesn't reach that far. Um, but sound travels about four to five, nearly five times uh, faster in water than in air. Sound transmits very well in water. So, so marine mammals have evolved to exploit the sense of sound. But on the other hand, noise also transmits very well. And the noise or roar of human activities has increased tremendously in the past few decades. Uh, you know, there, there's all sorts of human activities that inject noise into the underwater world, you know, from oil and gas exploration to shipping to, um, you know, pleasure craft uh, traffic. And uh, 
So belugas in the St. Lawrence uh, River estuary have to put up with, with very high noise uh, levels from all sorts of, uh, of activities. Uh, and this is one of the things that we've been looking um, at for the last uh, few years. Uh, we found that uh, calves, because they need to learn their sounds, they also actually need to learn to become louder and to use sounds at higher frequencies. When they're very young, in the first week or two of life, uh, beluga calves produce very, very soft sound. It's a little bit as if you were running your finger through a comb. That's the way a, a calf would sound. And they don't have the vocal flexibility to compensate for noise and, and resort to other sounds or to higher frequency sounds. They don't do any of that. So we looked at what the impacts of, of anthropogenic or human noise would be on the ability of mothers and calves to stay in touch um, in the St. Lawrence. And this is a paper that we just submitted for publication a couple of months ago, it got accepted with revisions, and I'm frantically revising. And hopefully, <laughs> <laughs> hopefully, it'll be out uh, in January or February. We hope uh, in the coming year. But yes, so we so to backtrack, we deployed a couple of hydrophones with our partners to compare noise levels and to uh, begin a study that I'm super excited about that I recruited a PhD student for. Her name is Jacqueline O'Ben. She's wonderful and you really want to have her on Whale Tales uh, because she's also Got a it. great speaker. <laughs> <laughs> Writing it down. Yes, she's, she's fantastic. And she did a great study on alloparental care in St. Lawrence Belugas. That's how I met her. We, we, were, we worked together on a little research tower in the middle of a beluga nursery in Bay St. Marguerite for two years. And um, and then she's on board with this uh, this study that we we were going to initiate this year in the field, but you know which we, we couldn't. So it's just just hydrophone data this year. We'll do the behavioral data next year, and the study consists on exploring whether the three potential female communities that are believed to exist in the Saint Lawrence estuary have different uh, acoustic repertoires. So can we distinguish these three communities acoustically, which would be wonderful in terms of not only being able to uh, use passive acoustic monitoring to track these communities, but it would be then it would make belugas the third species with true dialects, uh, along with killer whales and sperm whales. Mm -hmm. So we're just in the very beginning of this study. We don't know what the answer is, but it is a super, super uh, excited study that's very close to, to my heart and to her heart, I think. One of the things I've been really fascinated with this year is just the difference and the huge outlier that this year is going to have on research, especially with ocean noise and the, the complete difference Absolutely. From everywhere else. Yeah. Um, so, like, I know that we can't predict what's going to happen next year and stuff like that, but is, are those kinds of things, like, not even with you, but do you know about research that's happening? Like, I just want to go out there. I don't have a hydrophone. I don't have a research. I don't have funding, but I just want to go do some studies. I just want to know what's happening out there. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and you're right to want to know that. And a lot of people want to want to know that. And, and uh, people have been measuring noise levels uh, this year during COVID and comparing them to, to previous years. There's been a great study put out by, I think it's David Barclay from the University of Halifax. He, he worked uh, with uh, data from uh, uh, hydrophones deployed in the Strait, Strait of Georgia. And he found uh that there was quite uh, quite a bit of a decrease in noise levels compared compared to to previous years, and folk are doing the same thing all over the world. We 
you know, one of the ideas for the hydrophone deployment in the St. Lawrence is to compare noise levels to not to previous years because we didn't have hydrophones deployed in these two particular locations, but potentially to future years. Getting the data for this one year, having this built in science experiment of a year. That's a nice way to say what this year was. That's a very, very nice way. The, the, putting the silver lining on 2020. Oh, yeah. It is It is. It is a silver lining. And, you know, very much like, uh, you know, I, you probably have heard of the famous uh, 2011 uh, mm, North Atlantic yeah. right whale study that found, you know, all of a sudden all shipping ceased for a couple of days after the September 11 at- attacks. And... Uh, a person that was collecting fecal samples from from uh, right whales uh, analyzed uh, the the stress levels in hormones and found tremendously decreased uh, levels of a stress hormone that she was looking at, and this uh, matched perfectly the the tremendous decrease in underwater noise during those days. Uh, so so that that was a natural you know natural experiment. Uh, that points points to this kind of thing. I, I watched a little beautiful video from Orca Lab uh, the other day, um, mm-hmm. also talking about how suddenly they, you know, this year they didn't have the amount of cruise ships passing by the front of, of you know, of the island of, of where Orca Lab is located mm-hmm. and that they, they could hear um, killer whales, you know, in, in a much more beautiful uh, way than, than they had in previous years. A lot of our listeners are students or aspiring students. And so just wondering if you have any advice for people <laughs> wanting to build a career as a researcher. Yeah, absolutely. Volunteer. If you can afford, you know, I, I mean, it's, it's, it feels like a very tricky recommendation to give because students need money to make money during the summers to pay for their way. Uh, in school, but if there's any way that they can devote at least one month a summer to not make money but volunteer, those volunteer experiences count immensely. Th- that's that's what got me started. I you know I I volunteered on different jobs since I was eighteen, I think, um, and you gain experience and you you gain contacts mm. and you also gain an ability yeah. to discern what you like from what you don't like, you know, biology is a very, yeah, it's a very broad field and you're not going to like, like it all. So it, it, you test the waters, so to speak. <laughs> so that's, that's, that's my main, that's my main recommendation. Hey, we had such a great time chatting with Valeria about her research and about belugas and the Arctic that our interview ran a little long. So we decided as a special end of the year bonus to put the full interview up on our Patreon as a special thank you for our patrons at the $5 dolphin level and above. What is a Patreon, are you wondering? Well, Patreon is a place where you can go and support creators. So people who make art or podcasts or any of your other favorite creations out there. Uh, People who need your support in order to continue to make the things that you love, like whale tails. You can sign up to donate whatever you have laying around, the spare change that exists electronically, because we don't have real change anymore most of the time. Um, so whether it's a dollar a month or more, if you're able to spare, um, and you can sign up to become one of our patrons and support everything that we do at Whale Tales, including this podcast. Yeah. So we have a couple of different levels of perks. We have the $1 a month, uh, tier, which is the porpoise level. 
And you get amazing things like a merch discount and a weekly newsletter with news and stories, as well as you get to vote in our Fun Flipper Fact polls and help decide what we're going to talk about in the next episode. At our dolphin level, which is $5 a month and up, you get this episode, very exciting, <laughs> as well as the a bigger merch discount as and a hand-painted watercolor logo postcard painted by our very own Nicole. Whee! Um, and then at the $10 level, which is whale, can you see the steam? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you get all of this stuff, plus you also get a watercolor humpback painted, again, by Nicole, and you get to produce your very own fun flipper fact for an episode. It's all your idea, and we take what you want to talk about, and we talk about it. And Nicole sings the song, and everybody's very excited about it. You can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash whaletales. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash whaletales. Or... We totally understand if your finances are tough and you don't um, feel up to doing that. We would love, though, to hear from you um, or to help us spread the word to other whale enthusiasts. You can leave us a rating or or a review wherever you are listening to this podcast, such as Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much to our patrons and thanks to all of you who listen. You are the best. Uh, well, I do feel like we could just pick your brain forever <laughs> on, oh, on yeah, the and all of the experience you've had. But one of my favorite parts of our podcast is a little segment that we like to call Fun Flavor Facts, Fun Flavor Facts, Fun Flavor Facts with Valeria. And this is just a section of each episode where we usually, but now it's going to be, I'm asking you to share just a fun fact, like something, obviously contact calls are an incredible thing. That yeah, that's a fun fact. And have learned <laughs> so much of that. Um, but our fun flipper facts are usually kind of like short, sweet, just like fun, quirky things that we think are really interesting about various stations. So if you have a favorite fun flipper fact or a couple that you'd like to share this we'd love to hear them sure uh one of the, my favorite things is that belugas can have flexible necks no cetacean has a flexible <laughs> neck and this is actually more important than you think because when an animal has a flexible neck it means they can turn their neck to look at you it also means they can turn their neck to look at their companions so when you're a biologist watching these animals there's a lot more information that you can gather because you see who they are directing their their interactions towards, yeah. So they, that's that's a neat one, and it's actually belugas are very curious animals. Um, I think curiosity is really related to intelligence. You know, you can't have curiosity without intelligence. But belugas are very curious. They always inevitably come to check you out in the field. It always happens. And you can tell when a beluga is checking you out. If you're if you're standing on the research tower looking down and a beluga is looking up at you, they just twist their necks and they put their eye on the surface and you just can tell that they're they're looking at you. So that's that's a pretty cool fact. I like that's it. The main part of our podcast, or one of the main parts of our podcast and our website in general, is sharing um, stories about encounters with uh, cetaceans in the wild. So because you've spent a lot of time in the wild <laughs> doing field research, you probably have some pretty cool whale tales. So we were wondering if you could share with us one of your favorite cetacean encounters. Sure, yeah. Um, it was uh, Churchill, I think it was 2017. 
uh, and we had made it up the river in, in our, we, our research zodiac was ridiculously small. <laughs> and uh, we, we went to a place called Mosquito Creek, which is, uh, you know, I mean, mosquitoes are insane. And like, you, you can, yeah, you can, you can lean on them. They form a wall oh. around the boat. Oh, <laughs> but Mosquito Creek uh, uh, or Mosquito Point is an area where, according to, to local knowledge, um, the whales birth their, their little calves. Uh, and so we were uh, drifting with the boat uh, and we had the speakers in the water and we were listening to this cacophony of sounds. And then suddenly through our speakers, we hear these persistent maternal contact calls that I had learned to identify so well. They're so unmistakable. Uh, there's a quality to the maternal contact call when a calf is born. And this we know through um, recording three different births at the aquarium that is much more urgent and sort of high-pitched and persistent than the regular regular day-to-day um, -day contact calls that they use to maintain contact with their calves. So when calves are, are being born, these contact calls, are, they have a particular quality to them, and that's what we were hearing. And then we look and we see by our boat, literally an arm, arm reach away, a little newborn calf. You could see its fetal folds. You could see it, and, you know... The adults were farther away. There was no adult with this calf. So we figured, okay, mommy's calling this calf. This calf must have, you know, gotten away. The water was very turbid. And then the calf went underwater and uh, uh, the, the contact calls subsided. So we, you know, and we saw a group moving away. So we assumed the story had a good ending and mom <laughs> and calf uh, reunited. But, uh, but the, what this told me that day is that uh, and I wrote about this in a blog, is that the sounds that we hear when you when you learn the sounds of a species for so long, when you hear a species for so long, you become familiar with their with their language, with their moods. Mm -hmm. And so the sounds begin to act as indicators of of what you you would have missed if you didn't understand the sounds. You know, we we might have not looked for this calf if we didn't if we, if we weren't sure that this was a maternal contact call, so you immediately look around. Uh, so they are indicators of what's going on. And, and this is why studying the sounds of a species that survives through sound, so a species where, where the ecology of their sounds is so tied with their, with their social ecology is so, is so important. Thank you so much. So excited about those stories. No problem. I'll, I'll pass you, I'll give you the clip of this uh, I'll, so people can click on it and... <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Kind of want to ask, I'm curious, because you've been and seen so many amazing things with belugas, but um, what other species have you seen up there and also in the St. Lawrence when you're hanging around looking at belugas, you get other species just getting in your way of your science? Goodness, in the St. Lawrence, <laughs> we have we have seen uh, fin whales, we've seen blue whales, we've seen minke whales breaching. That was, it's just oh, extraordinary when that happens. It's, uh, it's, so weird. it's beautiful. That's awesome. In the high Arctic, I had the fortune of, of seeing a bowhead whale, uh, wow. you know, one of the, the heaviest, biggest species on the planet and, uh, narwhals who often travel. You often see, uh, herds of narwhal traveling alongside, uh, herds of beluga. And you guys have probably heard the story of the 
the narwhal, the juvenile narwhal that was adopted by a pot of St. Lawrence Belugas. Uh, and so we've been, you know, every, every year, uh, either my colleagues or, or, or myself and my colleagues uh, spot this narwhal um, with, with the beluga group. It's been a few years now that, uh, that this guy is, is seen doing well. It's nice to hear that that he's still doing that he's still he's still swimming. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. It's gonna be very funny if he stays with the beluga family as his tusk grows. I know, yeah, yeah, and you you wonder you wonder about things like interbreeding, right? What what's I mean, we know narlugas exactly. Yeah, we know it happens. You know how often we we don't know. Obviously, you have dedicated most of your life to the study of an incredible animal, but an animal that's also very much at risk yes. due to yes. due to human actions. Yeah. Um, do you can you speak a little bit about like what that means to you and how that has impacted your life and you know changes that you've made in your life and things that you really that you hope your research inspires in other the changes that you hope people people will make in their lives to protect these animals that are obviously so near and dear to your yeah, heart. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the things that I often think about is is the very immediate, um effect of our actions on, on marine life. And COVID showed us that more than ever. And, you know, suddenly the oceans become quieter and uh, and the effect on, on wildlife can be seen. I study underwater noise. So I'm, you know, I tend to think about what we can do in terms of reducing that noise. Um, one of the ways in which we can do this is is being very aware of what we consume and where that stuff comes from. If you think that the majority of, of shipping is for the transport transport of goods, then then try to buy locally, for instance. And that's easy to do. And it actually has an effect. Uh, if you are lucky enough to have a boat, you know, if you're a boat operator of any kind, slow down. Why? Because we know that speed is related to, to increased levels of noise. Uh, if you if you slow down, your boat is going to be quieter. Um, you can also make your boat quieter by cleaning the hull or or maintaining your propeller. So you can do things. If you if you're viewing cetaceans from a boat, keep your distance. Don't crowd them. You know the distance for for belu- endangered belugas and southern resident killer was actually it's four hundred meters now, which is a lot, but that's the way it is. Uh, try and watch watch whales from land. You know we have the whale trail with which the you know the cetacean uh, sightings network at uh, at oceanwise uh, has has led beautifully and uh, and there are all these extraordinary sites along the BC coast where you can actually go and see whales and the same is beginning to happen in the St. Lawrence uh, estuary thank you Valeria thank you it's i i do find that's always one of the hardest things when it comes to this love that we and our listeners all have for cetaceans is we love them so so much but there is a thing about loving them too much and Absolutely. it's important to let them teach us just as much as we want to learn about them and so it matters to hear it from from the mouth of somebody who has really dedicated their life to it, has gone to the most remote places you can find these animals and some of the most populated places you can find these animals to to really see the impact that that's having. Absolutely. Yeah. No, no problem. And, the, the you know, speaking of doing research in one of the most industrialized areas, which which is the St. Lawrence, there is a place called Basin Marguerite. Uh, in the St. Lawrence estuary that that has now, uh, fortunately, Parks Canada closed it down to to uh, boat traffic, at least a small area near shore. 
And, you know, if you're lucky, you go camping there, or you go for the day, you can have a, an extraordinary beluga experience from shore. You know, uh, belugas come very, very near shore. And, and all it takes is wanting to do a beautiful hike and patience and a pair of binoculars. And there's, you know, absolutely nothing disruptive about that. And there's so much to so much to gain. On the bucket list, when I'm allowed to travel again. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Valeria, we cannot thank you enough oh, for no, coming on our podcast. Thank today. you for having me. This was really fun. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm so happy glad. to share. Thank you. It was just really, really great to hear from you and also really, really great to see and speak to you. Again. <laughs> it was great. Much too long. <laughs> it was really great to touch base with you all too. And uh, looking forward to hearing this. I think that brings us, sad though it is, to the end of this episode. This has been really incredible, and we would love to hear your thoughts on this or any episode. So please visit our website, whale-tales.org, and find links to our various social media handles so that you can drop us a line. You can also tweet at us directly and tell us what you think. I am FHG07. Sarah is Sarah K. Given, no H. And Nicole is Nick F. Can, C-A-N-N. You can also find Valeria on Twitter and Instagram at marine underscore Valeria, which is V-A-L-E-R-I-A. You can head to our website to subscribe to our podcast, check out our merchandise, learn about supporting us and becoming a patron, and read over 900 whale, dolphin, and porpoise stories. That's whale-tales.org. Tales like the stories, not tales like the animal. And if you've seen a cetacean, we would love to add your story to our library. Click the share link on our site, contact us on social media, whaletales.org, or email us a voice memo and tell us all about your incredible encounter. Thank you again for listening and for supporting us. We will be back on the last Wednesday of next month with more fun facts and whale trivia. Thank you so much, everybody. Thank you, Valeria. And I hope that you all have a whaley great day.